The information provided on this podcast is not legal advice and is intended for the sole purpose of providing education and legal information. Laws change over time, and the information provided on this podcast may not be up to date. We make no warranty, express or implied, regarding the information provided by our team or our guests on this podcast. The information should not be construed as legal advice and does not create an attorney-client relationship with us or any of our guests on the podcast. If you would like to consult with an attorney, please call 1-800-VICTIMS. That's 1-800-842-8467 for attorney referral contact information. This podcast provides a platform for the exchange of ideas and information to help educate crime victims on their rights. Some content will include topics and materials that may involve descriptions of violence or assaults, which can be distressing to victims and survivors. It may also impact service providers experiencing vicarious trauma. Welcome back to part two of our discussion. Let's pick up where we left off. In your experience, have you seen domestic violence perpetrated in the workplace or domestic abuse perpetrated in the workplace? Yes, I I have. And it works out in in different ways. So I had referenced economic abuse earlier on in uh, our conversation. And one of the things that I've seen is that when the abuser knows that a, a job or stability in the job or the income is really important to the victim, that can be a source of threat that is used against the victim of, I'm going to create um, a ruckus around your work so nobody wants you there, or that I'm going to tell people what a horrible person you are and your coworkers or, or your boss wouldn't want to hire you anymore. Or they will do things that will um, affect your ability to get to work on time. So for instance, if there's a vehicle involved and that's in their possession and sometimes that's being controlled, um, then that'll make you look like a bad employee if you're not able to get to work on time. Or if there are constant issues that come up. So say this person is in charge of childcare when you're at work and they're either not handling it or they're constant crises at home. It's really hard for people to focus on work when they have so much other things going on. So these are some of that psychological ways that can, you know, abusers can really get to their victims. But also I've seen that in um, the workplace that control of, you know, whether the uh, victim is actually at work, um, what kind of relationships does, does he or she have with the coworkers? Are they having affairs? Questions on um, tracking the victim um, at work. That, that's come up in some of my cases. Um, in one case, I remember a client telling me about uh, her abuser being in the parking lot and refusing to leave. And she had no choice but to go to her manager and involve security to get him to leave. Um, and so these are the kinds of situations where it, it can definitely have an impact at work. And if the abuser works in that same work environment, that, again, is a power and control dynamic. Um, but also in California law, there are protections in place for the victim to take time from work to be able to go to court um, or to be able to file your papers. And there are protections to make sure that this is not a cause for you to lose your job. But on the flip side of things, because there's already this constant tension and possible absenteeism or workplace issues because of some of the impact from domestic violence spilling over into a work environment, a lot of clients don't want to tell their manager or their coworkers about 
some of the most intimate parts of their life. You know, they don't want to be perceived as someone who needs that assistance because they're in fear that this is going to affect their promotion, perhaps, or this is going to look badly on them in terms of performance, and it'll come up in other ways that they may be the first ones to be put on a list if the workplace is, um, you know, firing um, or laying off people. Let's uh, transition and start talking about the resources that that would be available. You did bring up some examples of what domestic violence looks like. If we have an audience member uh, who finds himself perhaps in in a position similar to what you described, perhaps you can talk about some community-based resources for domestic violence victims and and survivors. Absolutely. There are national, um, statewide, and countywide resources. Mm -hmm. And um, the national resources are um, organizations like the National Network to End Domestic Violence, NNEDV, and they have a national um, hotline. And then state resources um, like the Victims of Crime Resource Center, the 1-800-VICTIMS line, that's a great resource statewide where um, the Victims of Crime Resource Center can connect victims to providers in their community um, countywide services through, like, so for instance, in Sacramento County, um, Weave and My Sister's House and other similar organizations provide services to victims. Uh, the Family Justice Center here in Sacramento does that too. Um, and I think it just depends on where you're located and what the extent of services is that nonprofits in the area may be able to provide, or access to statewide providers like the 800 Victims Line that can connect you or national resources that may be, give, may be able to give you general information on some tips um, and, you know, um, things to watch out for or safety planning, things you want to consider in terms of um, making a move or taking a next step. Are there any government-based resources as well? Yes, there are. There is a statewide resource called the California's Victims' Compensation Board. And what they do is they administer the Victims' Compensation Program. And This requires an application, but some of the resources through this program are access to counseling sessions where the program, depending on um, whether or not the client or the victim is able to qualify for services, can get counseling sessions. Um, They can get relocation assistance. Sometimes they can get assistance with changing locks um, on their doors or getting security or alarm systems set up. But it is an application process, and um, that number is 1-800-777-9229. Additionally, for service providers, like nonprofits in the state, the Family Violence Appellate Project, which is based out of Oakland, is an excellent resource in terms of providing not only trainings, but also um, legal information and consults for um, appellate cases or cases that could be taken to that next level of um, legal adjudication. And their website is uh, fvaplaw.org. So it's fvaplaw.org. Fvaplaw.org? Yes. Okay. I, I would like to switch gears and, and talk a little bit about restraining orders. Can you talk about their function and, and how they can help survivors? Yeah. So... In the domestic violence um, prevention or protection area, the domestic violence restraining orders are the primary tool that um, victims or survivors are advised to get in order to protect themselves or their children 
from further harm or from escalation of violence. And um, restraining orders, they're, they're one kind of restraining orders that are available in California. And they have to have a qualification to be able to get this protection. And that qualification is you're either a, a current spouse or a former spouse, current dating relationship or former dating relationship. You're related by blood or marriage within two degrees of separation. Um, or you're in a parent-child relationship, and you can state that that's one of the categories. So this restraining order is, is um, assigned to these categories of people that can qualify for it. So you, in order to get a domestic violence restraining order, one would need to be in one of these categories of relationship. Yes. Okay. Maybe you can talk about the process for how one would go about actually getting the domestic violence restraining order. Okay. So some of the immediate protections that um, people can get through the domestic violence restraining order are physical protections, which, uh, which are court orders that the other party once served is uh, supposed to stay away from you. And that distance can be up to 100 yards, which is the size of a football field, right? So they have stay away orders. They have no contact orders. Um, so that, if you're looking at the urgency and immediacy of the situation, there are court orders that will prevent this person from being within your comfort zone or, you know, your home environment within 100 yards, um, or is not allowed to be around your work, around the kid's school if these protections are granted to you. So apart from the physical stay away and then the no contact order, so they cannot harass you or contact you by text or telephone, things like that, there are also protections for pets in the restraining order. There's protection for property where you, know, you want um, the ability to stay in a home and you're either married or the home is community property or jointly titled or you're renting and the lease is in both your names. You can get property control or property exclusion orders through the restraining order. You can get the ability to get off a family plan through you know, breaking up the telephone contract that you have with one of the three major providers. You can have the ability to gain control of belongings, um, but these are just personal belongings. A restraining order may not be the right avenue to move furniture, things like that. But you can definitely get prescriptions, you can get court orders to get social security cards or passports um, and other items like medication or um, important documents that you need to be able to move or give yourself distance. Is there any cost associated with, uh, with a domestic violence restraining order? No, domestic violence restraining orders are free under California law. There's no cost for filing them. And depending on the county that you live in, um, courts sometimes have workshops or um, they provide services to be able to help you fill out these forms. Some of these forms, especially when you're asking for custody to, and you want children to be protected as well, can be a bit complicated. Um, if someone is availing the full extent of all the protection in restraining orders, that packet of information that they have to fill out can be up to 40 to 45 pages. But a lot of it also includes, you know, copies of the request, which is what you're asking the court, and also partially pre-filled copies of the orders that the court is actually going to give you. So the process can be complicated. 
And so my um, advice to your listeners is if they have the ability and the time to be able to seek advice and um, get professional um, assistance on it, you know, go to the court, find out about services or talk to nonprofits in the area. But if you're in that emergency situation and you need this right away and you need to fill it out, you can do this on your own, too. What type of evidence does a survivor need to request a restraining order? So the evidence that um, the survivor would need, and you can do this one of two ways. You can either add this evidence to that request, the initial request, which is done in most counties on what is known as an ex parte basis, where you're filing it on your own without notifying the other party, right? And in most counties, the court will consider this just based on your filing alone and then decide what orders they're going to grant. And then you have to go through the legal process of getting these orders served on the other party in order for the orders to be effective. So the evidence that the court is looking for is, you know, are there pictures that support claims of injuries? Are there um, texts or voicemails that maybe can be written out by the person requesting the forms that show what kind of danger they're in? One of the things that I tell clients and when I'm presenting at workshops, one of the things that I tell people is that you have to let the court make the conclusion that the restraining order applies to you. A lot of times I will see requests for restraining orders where the victim or the survivor will try to make a conclusion. They'll say things like, um, I'm a victim of physical abuse. I'm a victim of emotional abuse. And that is, that's a conclusion. There are not enough facts that the court has in mind when they're reviewing these documents to say why and to support the victim's position that they are indeed you know, a victim of physical abuse. So instead, the domestic violence restraining order requests are laid out in a way where you have to describe um, the most three recent incidents that have occurred that caused you to be concerned for your safety or the well-being of yourself or your kids. And so in these incidents, I urge, you know, um, clients or victims or survivors to say, what happened? You know, why do you feel that you're in danger? What wants you to, at this point, get out of this relationship? What was something that was said to you? What was something that was done to you? Do you have any support that this happened? Are there witnesses? And maybe you can write down their names and perhaps what they saw as you start to prepare for the next steps in your case. And so you allow the judge or the, the reviewing court personnel to make the conclusion for you. Does there have to be multiple instances of abuse to get a, a restraining order or is one time uh, enough? You know, one incident is enough. But oftentimes when you're looking at what I've referred to before as the cycle of violence and um, depends on the duration of the relationship where things are happening either almost on a daily basis or within a day, it's happening multiple times. You have the ability to tell the court about more than one incident, but all you require is one incident. And from a legal perspective, as you go through the process, um, ultimately whether or not you can get a restraining order as a permanent order, will depend on whether you've met your burden of proof, which is whether you've shown with a preponderance of evidence that what you're saying has happened and that you need the protection as a result of it. Is requesting a restraining order always recommended for domestic violence victims, or are there times when it might not be a good idea? 
That is a great question, Nima. And I think people need to realize that they need to account for their individual situations and an understanding of the other person's reactions or behavior. And I don't always recommend restraining orders as the best possible outcome in many cases. And these cases are where I know that filing a restraining order or acting on your rights, even though you're fully entitled to do that in California, sometimes this leads to an escalation of violence that is unpredictable. Sometimes it leads to danger, either for yourself, for your children, or immediate family members um, in the home. Sometimes this leads to a long litigated, costly legal case that you cannot afford, and it's easier sometimes to give in, get away, um, and you know, get, you know, get to that safety part um, or element that you want for your life. Sometimes, you know, um, and I, I'm trying my best not to make a judgment call about this, sometimes it's safer to stay in a relationship. And people have to realize that social services organizations or other providers are not there to judge you for staying. But what I would urge victims or survivors to do is to find out about resources. Um, and maybe there are tips and tools that you can get in case there is a point of time where it is okay or safe for you to leave. And some of those tips and tools could be safety planning. So if you decide to stay in a relationship, how are you protecting yourself? Or how are you modifying the environment or the environment for the kids so they're not exposed to the constant trauma or stress or fear of you know, predictions or behavior that cannot be controlled from the other side. How can survivors get more information about domestic violence restraining orders? So the Judicial Council of California is um, a court administration organization that has created standardized forms for a lot of family law because of the number of filers that are representing themselves. And they have um, a lot of the forms that are used for victims or survivors of domestic violence um, online. So that website is courts with an S, so it's plural, courts.ca.gov. And when you go on there, you look at forms and you can type in domestic violence and it gives you a list of forms. However, one caution for your listeners is that some counties require local forms in addition to the statewide forms that Judicial Council has provided. And so it's always good if you have that technological access to go to your county court's website and see if they have that information on there. If not, your best bet is to reach out to service providers in the county or you know, reach out to the 1-800-VICTIMS line and ask them if they know, so for instance, you know, in Orange County, what are some of the forms or resources that I have in the area and they can direct you. Outside of a restraining order, are there any types, uh, other types of legal action a domestic violence survivor can take against an abuser? So outside of a restraining order, you can definitely engage in the family law environment. So for instance, if you know that you know, disclosure or providing information that you were told never to reveal um, under pain of threat or injury, right? Um, don't you dare talk about this to anybody. Or um, if you tell a single person, I will find out and I will come after you, right? So sometimes a lot of survivors or victims will say, okay, I don't want to go that route. I don't want to tell people about the shame or this fear or this threat that has been imposed upon me. Instead, 
I want to get away from this person and I'm going to either file for a divorce or a legal separation, or if you're not in a domestic, registered domestic partnership or you're not married, then the other options are is you file a petition for parentage acts where you can get a determination of custody for the kids. And you try to establish that separate legal route where you're not bringing up domestic violence, but you're trying to take legal steps to get away. I see. Let's talk a little bit about uh, a survivor's housing and, and work rights. Uh, do domestic violence survivors have any additional rights when it comes to housing? Yes, they absolutely do. So one of the um, recent laws that helps survivors in terms of housing is a civil code provision, and that's um, Code of Civil, so it's California Civil Code 1946.7. And this civil code allows a victim of domestic violence to leave a long-term lease with two weeks notice, so 14 days notice to the landlord. But this statute is um, very detailed in what has to be done in order for the victim to qualify. So some of the things in there that help you qualify is either a temporary restraining order or a police report or a counselor's report that you're indeed a victim of domestic violence or sexual assault. And um, this has to be accompanied with language that is specified in the statute about what has to be written in a letter as notice to your landlord before you're able to leave that with uh, that, two, that 14 day requirement. If any of our listeners would like to learn more about any of the topics that we've discussed today, where would you recommend they turn? So I would say that broadly, the courts.ca.gov website does have information on general you know, domestic violence. Um, I would also say that organizations um, in their area, the county organizations or 1-800-VICTIMS, their, their website may also be a good place to go to just get general information. The national resources that I mentioned, which is um, nnedv.org, which is the National Network to End Domestic Violence, that's also a good place for broad information on some of the um, kinds of abuse that I've discussed here with you. As far as the, the future of domestic violence protections, what's on the horizon? So a trend that I have noticed here um, in my end is that as protections for victims of domestic violence increase in the law, there's also an increase that I've seen where the abusers are now taking advantage of these protections. And they're the ones that want to be the first to file either in the court system to look like the victim, or they're the ones that will reach out to service providers or organizations pretending to be victims um, to ensure that they're accessing these services first. And to put the victims um, either at a disadvantage, either in court or with resources, or to make it seem like the victim is just not credible because they kind of upped the game. So I'm seeing a lot of these mutual filings in courts right now. The other thing that I'm seeing is that as protections for victims increase again, what courts used to perceive as high conflict custody cases and some of the protections now that are filtering into child custody seem to be blurring in terms of that distinction between what has traditionally been seen as a high conflict custody case versus domestic violence. So it's also the end result of both of these are increased litigation. And 
statistically, it has been shown that abusers tend to get more custody from protracted litigation than the victims, which is really sad in terms of the big picture of using the court system or the laws to help you be safe and to help your family or your children be safe. So at the end of the day, you have to look at your unique circumstances. You have to look at, you know, what are the mechanisms that the abuser has in place, whether it's financial resources, whether it's the intense psychological manipulations or emotional abuse that that uh, you may have been subjected to. And maybe, as we've talked about before, the restraining order litigation process may not be the solution. So you really have, to, I would advise people, if they're in situations where they need to figure out their plan of action, is to work with advocates in you know, local nonprofits that can help guide you in terms of a bigger strategy of how do you safely leave a relationship or how do you safely plan for next steps so you're not subject to some of these, um, these issues going on. Jaya, thank you so much for coming on the podcast and sharing your expertise on domestic violence. Great. Thanks so much, Nima, for having me and for also providing this resource to your listeners. The one thing that I did want to say as we wrap up is that um, none of this conversation is meant to be legal advice that um, you can act on. It is meant to be legal information and communication about you know, resources and um, other avenues and strategies for you to think about if um, any of these issues apply to you. But it is certainly not legal advice. Thank you for making that clear. Great. Thank you. Now that you've heard the show, please take a moment to write and review it. And if you have any questions about any of the information you heard today, you can reach the Victims of Crime Resource Center at 1-800-842-8467. Or you can reach us online at 1-800-VICTIMS.org or Facebook at Victims of Crime Resource Center or Twitter at 1-800-VICTIMS. If you haven't had a chance, please take a look at some of the other episodes in our series. Thanks for listening.